0: Welcome to episode 16 of the Classic Ghost Story Podcast. This is our third episode that features J. Sheridan LaFano's story, Carmilla, and this takes it to the end. So I'm sure you don't want to listen to me now, so here's the story. 11. The story. With all my heart, said the General, with an effort and after a short pause in which to arrange his subject, he commenced on one of the strangest narratives I ever heard. My dear child was looking forward with great pleasure to the visit you had been so good as to arrange for her to your charming daughter. Here he made a gallant but melancholy bow. In the meantime, we had an invitation to my old friend, the Count Karlsfeld, whose schloss is about six leagues to the other side of Karnstein. It was to attend the series of fêtes which you remember were given by him in honour of his illustrious visitor, the Grand Duke Charles. Yes, and very splendid, I believe they were, said my father. Princely. But then his hospitalities are quite regal. He has Aladdin's lamp, the night from which my sorrow dates was devoted to a magnificent masquerade. The grounds were thrown open, the trees hung with coloured lamps. There was such a display of fireworks as Paris itself had never witnessed. And such music, music, you know, is my weakness, such ravishing music. The finest instrumental band, perhaps, in the world, and the finest singers who could be collected from all the great operas in Europe. As you wandered through these fantastically illuminated grounds, the moonlighted chateau throwing a rosy light from its long rows of windows, you would suddenly hear these ravishing voices stealing from the silence of some grove or rising from boats upon the lake. I felt myself, as I looked and listened, carried back into the romance and poetry of my early youth. When the fireworks were ended and the ball beginning, we returned to the noble suite of rooms that were thrown open to the dancers. A masked ball, you know, is a beautiful sight, but so brilliant a spectacle of the kind I never saw before. It was a very aristocratic assembly. I was myself almost the only nobody present. My dear child was looking quite beautiful. She wore no mask. Her excitement and delight added an unspeakable charm to her features, always lovely. I remarked a young lady dressed magnificently but wearing a mask, who appeared to me to be observing my ward with extraordinary interest. I had seen her earlier in the evening in the great hall and again for a few minutes, walking near us on the terrace, under the castle windows, similarly employed. A lady, also masked, richly and gravely dressed and with a stately air like a person of rank, accompanied her as a chaperone. Had the young lady not worn a mask, I could, of course, have been much more certain upon the question whether she was really watching, my poor darling. I am now well assured that she was. We were now in one of the salons. My poor dear child had been dancing and was resting a little in one of the chairs near the door. I was standing near. The two ladies I have mentioned had approached, and the younger took the chair next to my ward, while her companion stood beside me, and for a little time addressed herself in a low tone to her charge. Availing herself of the privilege of her mask, she turned to me, and in the tone of an old friend and calling me by name, opened a conversation with me which piqued my curiosity a good deal. She referred to many scenes where she had met me at court, and to distinguished houses. She alluded to little incidents which I had long ceased to think of, but which I found had only lain in abeyance in my memory, for they instantly started into life at her touch. I became more and more curious to ascertain who she was every moment. She parried my attempts to discover very adroitly and pleasantly. The knowledge she showed of many passages in my life seemed to me all but unaccountable, and she appeared— to take a not unnatural pleasure in foiling my curiosity and in seeing me flounder in my eager perplexity from one conjecture to another. In the meantime, the young lady whom her mother called by the odd name of Milarka, when she once or twice addressed her, had with the same ease and grace got into conversation with my ward. She introduced herself by saying that her mother was a very old acquaintance of mine. She spoke of the agreeable audacity which a mask rendered practicable she talked like a friend, she admired her dress and insinuated very prettily her admiration of her beauty. She amused her with laughing criticisms upon the people who crowded the ballroom and laughed at my poor child's fun. She was very witty and lively when she pleased, and after a time they had grown very good friends, and the young stranger lowered her mask, displaying a remarkably beautiful face. I had never seen it before, neither had my dear child, but though it was new to us— The features were so engaging, as well as lovely, that it was impossible not to feel the attraction powerfully. My poor girl did so. I never saw anyone more taken with another at first sight, unless indeed it was the stranger herself, who seemed quite to have lost her heart to her. In the meantime, availing myself of the license of a masquerade, I put not a few questions to the elder lady. "'You have puzzled me utterly,' I said, laughing. "'Is that not enough? "'Won't you now consent to stand on equal terms "'and do me the kindness to remove your mask?' "'Can any request be more unreasonable?' she replied. "'Ask a lady to yield an advantage. "'Beside, how do you know you should recognise me? "'Years make changes.' "'As you see,' I said with a bow, "'and I suppose a rather melancholy little laugh. "'As philosophers tell us,' she said, "'and how do you know?' That the sight of my face would help you. I should like to take a chance for that, I answered. It is vain trying to make yourself out an old woman. Your figure betrays you. Years, nevertheless, have passed since I saw you, rather, since you saw me, for that is what I am considering. Milarka there is my daughter. I cannot then be young, even in the opinion of people who time has taught to be indulgent, and I may not like to be compared with what you remember me. You have no mask to remove, you can offer me nothing in exchange. My petition is to your pity to remove it, and mine to yours to let it stay where it is, she replied. Well, then, at least you will tell me whether you are French or German. You speak both languages so perfectly. I don't think I shall tell you that, General. You intend a surprise, and are meditating the particular point of attack. At all events, you won't deny this, I said, that being honoured by your permission to converse, I ought to know how to address you. Shall I say, Madame la Comtesse? She laughed, and she would no doubt have met me with another evasion, if indeed I can treat any occurrence in an interview, every circumstance of which was prearranged, as I now believe, with the profoundest cunning, as liable to be modified by accident. As to that, she began, but she was interrupted, almost as she opened her lips by a gentleman, dressed in black, who looked particularly elegant and distinguished, with this drawback, that his face was the most deadly pale I ever saw, except in death. He was in no masquerade, even in the plain evening dress of a gentleman, and he said, without a smile, but with a courtly and unusually low bow, Will Madame la Comtesse permit me to say a very few words which may interest her? The lady turned quickly to him and touched her lip in token of silence. She then said to me, Keep my place for me, General. I shall return when I have said a few words. And with this injunction playfully given, she walked a little aside with the gentleman in black and talked for some minutes, apparently very earnestly. They then walked away slowly together in the crowd, and I lost them for some minutes. I spent the interval in cudgelling my brains for a conjecture as to the identity of the lady who seemed to remember me so kindly, and I was thinking of turning about and joining in the conversation between my pretty ward and the countess's daughter, and trying whether by the time she returned I might not have a surprise in store for her by having her name, title, chateau, and estates at my fingers' ends, but at this moment— she returned, accompanied by the pale man in black who said, I shall return and inform Madame la Comtesse when her carriage is at the door. He withdrew with a bow. Twelve. A Petition. Then we are to lose Madame la Comtesse, but I hope only for a few hours, I said with a low bow. It may be that only, or it may be a few weeks. It was very unlucky his speaking to me just now as he did. Do you now know me? "'I assured her I did not. "'You shall know me,' she said, "'but not at present. "'We are older and better friends "'than perhaps you suspect. "'I shall in three weeks pass your beautiful schloss "'about which I have been making inquiries. "'I shall then look in on you for an hour or two "'and renew a friendship which I never think of "'without a thousand pleasant recollections. "'This moment a piece of news has reached me "'like a thunderbolt. "'I must set out now and travel by a devious route "'nearly a hundred miles.' With all the dispatch I can possibly make, my perplexities multiply. I am only deterred by the compulsory reserve I practice as to my name from making a very singular request of you. My poor child has not quite recovered her strength. Her horse fell with her at a hunt, which she had ridden out to witness, but her nerves have not yet recovered the shock, and our physician says that she must on no account exert herself for some time to come. We came here, in consequence, by very easy stages, hardly six leagues a day. I must now travel day and night on a mission of life and death, a mission the critical and momentous nature of which I shall be able to explain to you when we meet, as I hope we shall, in a few weeks, without the necessity of any concealment. She went on to make her petition, and it was in the tone of a person from whom such a request amounted to conferring rather than seeking a favour. This was only in manner and, as it seemed quite unconsciously, than the terms in which it was expressed, nothing could be more deprecatory. It was simply that I would consent to take charge of her daughter during her absence. This was, all things considered, a strange, not to say, an audacious request. She in some sort disarmed me by stating and admitting everything that could be urged against it and throwing herself entirely upon my chivalry. At the same moment, by a fatality that seems to have predetermined all that happened, My poor child came to my side and, in an undertone, besought me to invite her new friend Milarka to pay us a visit. She had just been sounding her and thought if her mamma would allow it, she would like it extremely. At another time I should have told her to wait a little until at least we knew who they were, but I had not a moment to think in. The two ladies assailed me together, and I must confess the refined and beautiful face of the young lady, about which there was something extremely engaging as well as the elegance and fire of high birth, determined me, and quite overpowered. I submitted, and undertook too easily, the care of the young lady whom her mother called Milarka. The countess beckoned to her daughter, who listened with grave attention while she told her in general terms how suddenly and peremptorily she had been summoned, and also of the arrangement she had made for her under my care, adding that I was one of her earliest and most valued friends. I made, of course, such speeches as the case seemed to call for, and found myself, on reflection, in a position which I did not half like. The gentleman in black returned and very ceremoniously conducted the lady from the room. The demeanour of this gentleman was such as to impress me with a conviction that the countess was a lady of very much more importance than her modest title alone might have led me to assume. Her last charge to me was that no attempt was to be made to learn more about her than I might already have guessed until her return. Our distinguished host, whose guest she was, knew her reasons. But here, she said, neither I nor my daughter could safely remain for more than a day. I removed my mask imprudently for a moment about an hour ago, and too late, I fancied you saw me. So I resolved to seek an opportunity of talking a little to you, Had I found out that you had seen me, I would have thrown myself upon your high sense of honour to keep my secret some weeks. As it is, I am satisfied that you did not see me. But if you now suspect, or, on reflection, should suspect who I am, I commit myself in like manner entirely to your honour. My daughter will observe the same secrecy, and I well know that you will from time to time remind her lest she should thoughtlessly disclose it. She whispered a few words to her daughter, kissed her hurriedly twice, and went away, accompanied by the pale gentleman in black, and disappeared into the crowd. "'In the next room,' said Milarka, "'there is a window that looks upon the hall door. I should like to see the last of Maman to kiss my hand to her.' We assented, of course, and accompanied her to the window. We looked out and saw a handsome, old-fashioned carriage with a troop of couriers and footmen. We saw the slim figure of the pale gentleman in black as he held a thick velvet cloak and placed it about her shoulders and threw the hood over her head. She nodded to him and just touched his hand with hers. He bowed low repeatedly as the door closed and the carriage began to move. She is gone, said Milarka with a sigh. She is gone, I repeated to myself for the first time in the hurried moments that had elapsed since my consent reflecting upon the folly of my act. "'She did not look up,' said the young lady plaintively. "'The Countess had taken off her mask, perhaps, and didn't care to show her face,' I said. "'And she could not know that you were in the window.' She sighed and looked in my face. She was so beautiful that I relented. I was sorry I had for a moment repented of my hospitality, and I determined to make her amends for the unavowed churlishness of my reception.' The young lady replacing her mask joined my ward in persuading me to return to the grounds where the concert was soon to be renewed. We did so, and walked up and down the terrace that lies under the castle windows. Milaka became very intimate with us, and amused us with lively descriptions and stories of most of the great people whom we saw upon the terrace. I liked her more and more every minute. Her gossip, without being ill-natured, was extremely diverting to me, who had been so long out of the great world. I thought what a life she would give to our sometimes lonely evenings at home. This ball was not over until the morning sun had almost reached the horizon. It pleased the Grand Duke to dance till then so loyal people could not go away or think of bed. We had just got through a crowded saloon when my ward asked me what had become of Milarka. I thought she had been by her side, and she fancied she was by mine. The fact was, we had lost her. All my efforts to find her were in vain i feared that she had mistaken in the confusion of a momentary separation from us other people for her new friends and had possibly pursued and lost them in the extensive grounds which were thrown open to us now in its full force i recognised a new folly in my having undertaken the charge of a young lady without so much as knowing her name and fettered as I was by promises, of the reasons for imposing which I knew nothing, I could not even point my inquiries by saying that the missing young lady was the daughter of the Countess who had taken her departure a few hours before. Morning broke. It was clear daylight before I gave up my search. It was not till near two o'clock the next day that we heard anything of my missing charge. At about that time a servant knocked at my niece's door to say that he had been earnestly requested by a young lady who appeared to be in great distress, to make out where she could find the General Baron Spielsdorf and the young lady his daughter, in whose charge she had been left by her mother. There could be no doubt, notwithstanding the slight inaccuracy, that our young friend had turned up, and so she had. Would to heaven we had lost her. She told my poor child a story to account for her having failed to recover us for so long. Very late, she said, she had got to the housekeeper's bedroom in despair of finding us, and had then fallen into a deep sleep, which, long as it was, had hardly sufficed to recruit her strength after the fatigues of the ball. That day, Malarka came home with us. I was only too happy, after all, to have secured so charming a companion for my dear girl. 13. The Woodman There soon, however, appeared some drawbacks. In the first place, Melaka complained of extreme languor, the weakness that remained after her late illness, and she never emerged from her room until the afternoon was pretty far advanced. In the next place, it was accidentally discovered, although she always locked her door from the inside and never disturbed the key from its place till she admitted the maid to assist her at her toilet, that she was undoubtedly sometimes absent from her room in the very early morning, and at various times later in the day, before she wished it to be understood that she was stirring. She was repeatedly seen from the windows of the Schloss, in the first faint grey of the morning, walking through the trees, in an easterly direction, and looking like a person in a trance. But this hypothesis did not solve the puzzle. How did she pass from her room, leaving the door locked on the inside? How did she escape from the house without unbarring door or window? In the midst of my perplexities, an anxiety of a far more urgent kind presented itself. My dear child began to lose her looks and health, and that in a manner so mysterious and even horrible that I became thoroughly frightened. She was at first visited by appalling dreams, then, as she fancied by a spectre, sometimes resembling Malacca, sometimes in the shape of a beast indistinctly seen, walking round the foot of her bed from side to side. Lastly came sensations. One, not too unpleasant but very peculiar, she said, resembled the flow of an icy stream against her breast. At a later time she felt something like a pair of large needles pierce her, a little below the throat, with a very sharp pain. A few nights after followed a gradual and convulsive sense of strangulation. Then came unconsciousness. I could hear distinctly every word the kind old general was saying, because by this time we were driving upon the short grass that spreads on either side of the road as you approached the roofless village, which had not shown the smoke of a chimney for more than half a century. You may guess how strangely I felt as I heard my own symptoms so exactly described in those which had been experienced by the poor girl, who, but for the catastrophe which followed, would have been at that moment a visitor at my father's chateau. You may suppose also how I felt as I heard him detail habits and mysterious peculiarities which were in fact those of our beautiful guest, Carmilla. A vista opened in the forest, we were on a sudden under the chimneys and gables of the ruined village, and the towers and battlements of the dismantled castle, round which gigantic trees are grouped, overhung us from a slight eminence. In a frightened dream I got down from the carriage, and in silence, for we had each abundant matter for thinking, we soon mounted the ascent and were among the spacious chambers, winding stairs and dark corridors of the castle. And this was once the palatial residence of the Karnsteins," said the old general at length, as from a great window he looked out across the village and saw the wide, undulating expanse of forest. It was a bad family, and here— Its blood-stained annals were written, he continued. It is hard that they should after death continue to plague the human race with their atrocious lusts. That is the chapel of the Kahnsteins, down there. He pointed down to the grey walls of the Gothic building, partly visible through the foliage, a little way down the steep. And I hear the axe of a woodman, he added, busy among the trees that surround it. He possibly may give us the information for which I am in search, and point out the grave. "'of Mirkala, Countess of Karnstein, "'These rustics preserve the local traditions of great families, "'whose stories die out among the rich and titled "'so soon as the families themselves become extinct. "'We have a portrait at home of Mirkalla, the Countess Karnstein. "'Should you like to see it?' asked my father. "'Time enough, dear friend,' replied the general. "'I believe that I have seen the original, "'and one motive which has led me to you earlier than I at first intended "'was to explore the chapel.' which we are now approaching. "'What? See the Countess Mercallor?' exclaimed my father. "'Why, she has been dead more than a century.' "'Not so dead as you fancy, I am told,' answered the General. "'I confess, General, you puzzle me utterly,' replied my father, looking at him. "'I fancied for a moment with the return of the suspicion I detected before, but although there was anger and detestation at times in the old General's manner, there was nothing flighty.' There remains to me, he said, as we passed under the heavy arch of the Gothic church, for its dimensions would have justified it being so styled. But one object which can interest me during the few years that remain to me on earth, and that is to wreak on her the vengeance which, I thank God, may still be accomplished by a mortal arm. What vengeance can you mean? asked my father in increased amazement. I mean to decapitate the monster, he answered with a fierce flush and a stamp that echoed mournfully through the hollow ruin. And his clenched hand was at the same moment raised, as if it grasped the handle of an axe, while he shook it ferociously in the air. What, exclaimed my father, more than ever bewildered, to strike her head off? Cut her head off? I, with a hatchet, with a spade, or with anything that can cleave through her murderous throat. You shall hear, he answered, trembling with rage, and hurrying forward he said, That beam will answer for a seat. Your dear child is fatigued. Let her be seated, and I will, in a few sentences, close my dreadful story. The squared block of wood which lay on the grass-grown pavement of the chapel formed a bench, on which I was very glad to seat myself, and in the meantime the general called to the woodman, who had been removing some boughs which leaned upon the old walls, and, axe in hand, the hardy old fellow stood before us. He could not tell us anything of these monuments, but there was an old man, he said, a ranger of this forest, at present sojourning in the house of the priest about two miles away, who could point out every monument of the old Karnstein family. And for a trifle he undertook to bring him back with him, if he would lend him one of our horses, in little more than half an hour. "'Have you been long employed about this forest?' asked my father of the old man." I have been a woodman here, he answered in his patois, under the forester all my days. So has my father before me, and so on, as many generations as I can count up. I could show you the very house in the village here in which my ancestors lived. How came the village to be deserted? asked the general. It was troubled by revenants, sir. Several were tracked to their graves. They are detected by the usual tests and extinguished in the usual way. "'by decapitation, by the stake, and by burning, "'but not until many of the villagers were killed. "'But after all these proceedings according to law,' he continued, "'so many graves opened, "'and so many vampires deprived of their horrible animation, "'the village was not relieved. "'But a Moravian nobleman who happened to be travelling this way "'heard how matters were, "'and being skilled, as many people are in his country, in such affairs,' He offered to deliver the village from its tormentor. He did so thus. There being a bright moon that night, he ascended shortly after sunset. The towers of the chapel here, from whence he could distinctly see the churchyard beneath him. You can see it from that window. From this point he watched until he saw the vampire come out of his grave and place near it the linen clothes in which he had been folded and then glide away towards the village to plague its inhabitants. The stranger, having seen all this, came down from the steeple, took the linen wrappings of the vampire, and carried them up to the top of the tower, which he again mounted. When the vampire returned from his prowlings and missed his clothes, he cried furiously to the Moravian, whom he saw at the summit of the tower, and who in reply beckoned him to ascend and take them. Whereupon the vampire, accepting his invitation, began to climb the steeple, and so soon as he had reached the battlements... The Moravian with a stroke of his sword clove his skull in twain, hurling him down to the churchyard, whither descending by the winding stairs the stranger followed and cut his head off, and the next day delivered it, and the body to the villagers who duly impaled and burnt them. This Moravian nobleman had the authority from the then head of the family to remove the tomb of Mikala, Countess Karnstein, which he did effectually so that in a little while its sight was quite forgotten. "'Can you point out where it stood?' asked the general eagerly. The forester shook his head and smiled. "'Not a soul living could tell you that now,' he said. "'Besides, they say our body was removed, but no one's sure of that either.' Having thus spoken as time pressed, he dropped his axe and departed, leaving us to hear the remainder of the general's strange story. 14. The Meeting My beloved child, he resumed, was now growing rapidly worse. The physician who attended her had failed to produce the slightest impression on her disease, for such then I supposed it to be. He saw my alarm and suggested a consultation. I called in an abler physician from Graz. Several days elapsed before he arrived. He was a good and pious as well as a learned man, Having seen my poor ward together, they withdrew to my library to confer and discuss. I, from the adjoining room where I awaited their summons, heard these two gentlemen's voices raised in something sharper than a strictly philosophical discussion. I knocked at the door and entered. I found the old physician from Graz maintaining his theory. His rival was combating it with undisguised ridicule, accompanied with bursts of laughter. This unseemly manifestation subsided and the altercation ended on my entrance. Sir, said my first physician, my learned brother seems to think that you want a conjurer and not a doctor. Pardon me, said the old physician from Gratz, looking displeased. I shall state my own view of the case in my own way another time. I grieve, Monsieur le General, that by my skill and science I can be of no use. Before I go, I shall do myself the honour to suggest something to you. He seemed thoughtful and sat down at the table and began to write. Profoundly disappointed, I made my bow, and as I turned to go, the other doctor pointed over his shoulder to his companion, who was writing, and then, with a shrug significantly, touched his forehead. This consultation then left me precisely where I was. I walked out into the grounds all but distracted. The doctor from Graz in ten or fifteen minutes overtook me. He apologised for having followed me, but said— that he could not conscientiously take his leave without a few words more. He told me that he could not be mistaken. No natural disease exhibited the same symptoms, and the death was already very near. There remained, however, a day, or possibly two, of life. If the fatal seizure were at once arrested, with great care and skill, her strength might possibly return. But all hung now upon the confines of the irrevocable. One more assault might extinguish the last spark of vitality which is, every moment, ready to die. Then what is the nature of the seizure you speak of, I entreated? I have stated all fully in this note which I place in your hands upon the distinct condition that you send for the nearest clergyman and open my letter in his presence, and on no account read it till he is with you. You would despise it else, and it is a matter of life and death. Should the priest fail you, then indeed you may read it. He asked me before taking his leave finally whether I wished to see a man curiously learned upon the very subject, which after I had read his letter would probably interest me above all others. And he urged me earnestly to invite him to visit him there, and so took his leave. The ecclesiastic was absent, and I read the letter by myself. At another time, or in another case, it might have excited my ridicule but into what quackeries will not people rush for a last chance where all accustomed means have failed and the life of a beloved object is at stake? Nothing, you will say, could be more absurd than the learned man's letter. It was monstrous enough to have consigned him to a madhouse. He said that the patient was suffering from the visits of a vampire. The punctures which he described as having occurred near the throat were, he insisted, the insertion of those two long, thin and sharp teeth which it is well known are peculiar to vampires, and there could be no doubt, he added, as to the well-defined presence of the small livid mark which all concurred in describing as that induced by the demon's lips. And every symptom described by the sufferer was in exact conformity with those recorded in every case of a similar visitation. Being myself wholly sceptical as to the existence of any such portent as the vampire, The supernatural theory of the good doctor furnished, in my opinion, but another instance of learning and intelligence oddly associated with some one hallucination. I was so miserable, however, that rather than try nothing, I acted upon the instructions of the letter. I concealed myself in the dark dressing-room that opened upon the poor patient's room in which a candle was burning, and watched there till she was fast asleep. I stood at the door peeping through the small crevice my sword laid on the table beside me, as my directions prescribed, until, a little after one, I saw a large black object, very ill-defined, crawl, as it seemed to me, over the foot of the bed, and swiftly spread itself up to the poor girl's throat, where it swelled in a moment into a great palpitating mass. For a few moments I had stood petrified. I now sprang forward with my sword in my hand, the black creature suddenly contracted towards the foot of the bed, glided over it, and standing on the floor about a yard below the foot of the bed, with a glare of skulking ferocity and horror fixed upon me, I saw Milarka. Speculating I know not what, I struck at her instantly with my sword, but I saw her standing near the door unscathed. Horrified, I pursued and struck again. She was gone, and my sword flew to shivers against the door. I can't describe to you all that passed upon that horrible night. The whole house was up and stirring, the spectre milaca was gone, but her victim was sinking fast, and before the morning dawned, she died. The old general was agitated, we didn't speak to him. My father walked us some little distance and began reading the inscriptions on the tombstones, and thus occupied, he strolled into the door of a side chapel to prosecute his researches. The general leaned against the wall, dried his eyes, and sighed heavily. I was relieved on hearing the voices of Carmilla and Madame, who were at that moment approaching. The voices died away. In this solitude, having just listened to so strange a story, connected, as it was, with the great entitled dead, whose monuments were mouldering among the dust and ivy round us, and every incident of which bore so awfully upon my own mysterious case, in this haunted spot, Darkened by the towering foliage that rose on every side, dense and high above its noiseless walls, a horror began to steal over me, and my heart sank, as I thought that my friends were, after all, not about to enter and disturb this trist and ominous scene. The old general's eyes were fixed upon the ground as he leaned with his hand upon the basement of a shattered monument. Under a narrow arched doorway, surmounted by one of those demoniacal grotesques in which the cynical and ghastly fancy of old Gothic carving delights, I saw, very gladly, the beautiful face and figure of Carmilla enter the shadowy chapel. I was just about to rise and speak and nodded, smiling in answer to her peculiarly engaging smile, when with a cry the old man by my side caught up the woodman's hatchet and started forward. On seeing him, a brutalised change came over her features. It was an instantaneous and horrible transformation as she made a crouching step backwards. Before I could utter a scream, he struck at her with all his force, but she dived under his blow and, unscathed, caught him in her tiny grasp by the wrist. He struggled for a moment to release his arm, but his hand opened, the axe fell to the ground, and the girl was gone. He staggered against the wall, his grey hair stood upon his head, and a moisture shone over his face, as if he were at the point of death. The frightful scene had passed in a moment. The first thing I recollect after is madame standing before me, and impatiently repeating again and again the question, Where is Mademoiselle Carmilla? I answered at length, I don't know, I, I can't tell, she went there, and I pointed to the door through which madame had just entered, only a minute or two since. But I have been standing there in the passage ever since Mademoiselle Carmilla entered, and she did not return. She then began to call Carmilla through every door and passage and from the windows, but no answer came. She called herself Carmilla, asked the general, still agitated. Carmilla, yes, I answered. Ah, he said, that is Milaka. that is the same person who long ago was called Mirkala, Countess Karnstein. Depart from this accursed ground, my poor child, as quickly as you can. Drive to the clergyman's house and stay there till we come. Be gone. May you never behold Carmilla more. You will not find her here. 15. Ordeal and Execution. As he spoke, one of the strangest looking men I ever beheld entered the chapel at the door through which Carmilla had made her entrance and her exit. He was tall. "'narrow-chested, stooping with high shoulders and dressed in black. "'His face was brown and dried in with deep furrows. "'He wore an oddly-shaped hat with a broad leaf. "'His hair, long and grizzled, hung on his shoulders. "'He wore a pair of gold spectacles "'and walked slowly with an odd, shambling gait, "'with his face sometimes turned up to the sky "'and sometimes bowed down towards the ground, "'seemed to wear a perpetual smile. "'His long, thin arms were swinging and his lank hands in old black gloves ever so much too wide for them, waving and gesticulating in utter abstraction. The very man, exclaimed the general, advancing with manifest delight, my dear Baron, how happy I am to see you. I had no hope of meeting you so soon. He signed to my father, who had by this time returned, and leading the fantastical gentleman whom he called the Baron, to meet him. He introduced him formally, and they at once entered into an earnest conversation. The stranger took a roll of paper from his pocket and spread it on the worn surface of a tomb that stood by. He had a pencil case in his fingers, with which he traced imaginary lines from point to point on the paper, which, from their often glancing from it together at certain points of the building, I concluded to be a plan of the chapel. He accompanied what I may term his lecture with occasional readings from a dirty little book whose yellow leaves were closely written over. They sauntered together down the side aisle opposite to the spot where I was standing, conversing as they went. Then they began measuring distances by paces, and finally they all stood together, facing a piece of the side wall, which they began to examine with great minuteness, pulling off the ivy that clung over it, and wrapping the plaster with the ends of their sticks, scraping here and knocking there. At length they ascertained the existence of a broad marble tablet, with letters carved in relief upon it. With the assistance of the woodman who soon returned, a monumental inscription and carved escutcheon were soon disclosed. They proved to be those of the long-lost monument of Mikalla, Countess Karnstein. The old general, though not, I fear, given to the praying mood, raised his hands and eyes to heaven in mute thanksgiving for some moments. Tomorrow, I heard him say, the commissioner will be here, and the inquisition will be held according to law. Then, turning to the old man with the gold spectacles whom I have described, He shook him warmly by both hands and said, Baron, how can I thank you? How can we all thank you? You will have delivered this region from a plague that has scourged its inhabitants for more than a century. The horrible enemy, thank God, is at last tracked. My father led the stranger aside and the general followed. I know that he had led them out of hearing that he might relate my case, and I saw them glance often quickly at me as the discussion proceeded. My father came to me, kissed me again and again, and leading me from the chapel said, It's time to return, but before we go home, we must add to our party the good priest, who lives but a little way from this, and persuade him to accompany us to the Schloss. In this quest we were successful, and I was glad being unspeakably fatigued when we reached home. But my satisfaction was changed to dismay on discovering that there were no tidings of Carmilla. Of the scene that had occurred in the ruined chapel, No explanation was offered to me, and it was clear that it was a secret which my father for the present determined to keep from me. The sinister absence of Carmilla made the remembrance of the scene more horrible to me. The arrangements for the night were singular. Two servants and madame were to sit up in my room that night, and the ecclesiastic with my father kept watch in the adjoining dressing-room. The priest had performed certain solemn rites that night, the purport of which I didn't understand any more than I comprehended the reason of this extraordinary precaution taken for my safety during sleep. I saw it all clearly a few days later. The disappearance of Carmilla was followed by the discontinuance of my nightly sufferings. You have heard, no doubt, of the appalling superstition that prevails in Upper and Lower Styria, in Moravia, Silesia, in Turkish Serbia, in Poland, even in Russia the superstition, so we must call it, of the vampire. If human testimony, taken with every care and solemnity, judicially before commissions innumerable, each consisting of many members, all chosen for integrity and intelligence, and constituting reports more voluminous, perhaps, than exist upon any one other class of cases, is worth anything, it is difficult to deny or even to doubt the existence of such a phenomenon as the vampire. For my part I have heard no theory by which to explain what I myself have witnessed and experienced, other than that supplied by the ancient and well-attested belief in the country. The next day the formal proceedings took place in the chapel of Karnstein. The grave of the Countess Michala was opened, and the general and my father recognised each his perfidious and beautiful guest in the face now disclosed to view. The features, though a hundred and fifty years had passed since her funeral, were tinted by the warmth of life. Her eyes were open. No cadaverous smell exhaled from the coffin. The two medical men, one officially present, the other on the part of the promoter of the inquiry, attested the marvellous fact that there was a faint but appreciable respiration and a corresponding action of the heart. The limbs were perfectly flexible, the flesh elastic, and the leaden coffin floated with blood in which to a depth of seven inches the body lay immersed. Here, then, were all the admitted signs and proofs of vampirism. The body, therefore, in accordance with the ancient practice, was raised, and a sharp stake driven through the heart of the vampire, who uttered a piercing shriek at the moment in all respects, such as might escape from a living person in the last agony. Then the head was struck off, and a torrent of blood flowed from the severed neck, The body and head was next placed on a pile of wood and reduced to ashes which were thrown upon the river and borne away and that territory has never since been plagued by the visits of a vampire. My father has a copy of the report of the Imperial Commission with the signatures of all who were present at these proceedings attached in verification of the statement. It is from this official paper that I have summarised my account of this last shocking scene. 16. Conclusion. I write all this, you suppose, with composure, but far from it. I cannot think of it without agitation. Nothing but your earnest desire, so repeatedly expressed, could have induced me to sit down to a task that has unstrung my nerves for months to come, and reinduced a shadow of the unspeakable horror which years after my deliverance continued to make my days and nights dreadful, and solitude. Insupportably terrific. But let me add a word or two about that quaint Baron Fordenburg, to whose curious law we are indebted for the discovery of the Countess MacAlla's grave. He had taken up his abode in Graz, where, living upon a mere pittance, which was all that remained to him of the once princely estates of his family in Upper Styria, he devoted himself to the minute and laborious investigation of the marvellously authenticated tradition of vampirism. He had at his fingers' ends all the great and little works upon the subject, Magia Posthuma, Phlegon de Mirabilibus, Augustinius de Cura Promortuis, Philosophicae e Christiane Cogiationis de Vampiris, by John Christopher Herrenberg, and a thousand others, upon which I remember only a few of those which he lent to my father. He had a voluminous digest of all the judicial cases from which he had extracted a system of principles that appear to govern, some always, and others occasionally only, the condition of the vampire. I may mention in passing that the deadly pallor attributed to that sort of revenance is a mere melodramatic fiction. They present in the grave, and when they show themselves in human society, the appearance of healthy life. When disclosed to light in their coffins, they exhibit all the symptoms that are enumerated as those which proved the vampire life of the long-dead Countess Kahnstein. How they escape from their graves and return to them for certain hours every day without displacing the clay or leaving any trace of disturbance in the state of the coffin or the cerements has always been admitted to be utterly inexplicable. The amphibious existence of the vampire is sustained by daily renewed slumber in the grave, Its horrible lust for living blood supplies the vigour of its waking existence. The vampire is prone to be fascinated with engrossing vehemence resembling the passion of love by particular persons. In pursuit of these, it will exercise inexhaustible patience and stratagem for access to a particular object may be obstructed in a hundred ways. It will never desist until it has satiated its passion and drained the very life of its coveted victim but it will in these cases husband and protract its murderous enjoyment with the refinement of an epicure and heighten it by the gradual approaches of an artful courtship. In these cases it seems to yearn for something like sympathy and consent. In ordinary ones it goes direct to its object, overpowers with violence and strangles and exhausts often at a single feast. The vampire is apparently subject in certain situations to special conditions. In the particular instance of which I have given you a relation, Mikala seemed to be limited to a name which, if not her real one, should at least reproduce without the omission or addition of a single letter those, as we say, anagrammatically which compose it. Carmilla did this. So did Milaka. My father related to the Baron Fordenberg, who remained with us for two or three weeks after the expulsion of Carmilla, the story about the Moravian nobleman and the vampire at Karnstein churchyard, and then he asked the baron how he had discovered the exact position of the long concealed tomb of the Countess Michalla. The baron's grotesque features puckered up into a mysterious smile. He looked down, still smiling, on his worn spectacle case and fumbled with it, then looking up he said, I have read many journals and other papers written by that remarkable man. The most curious among them is the one treating of the visit of which you speak, to Kahnstein. This tradition, of course, discolours and distorts a little. He might have been termed a Moravian nobleman, for he had changed his abode to that territory, and was, besides, a noble, but he was in truth a native of Upper Styria. It is enough to say that in very early youth he had been a passionate and favoured lover of the beautiful Mikala, Countess Kahnstein. Her early death plunged him into inconsolable grief. It is the nature of vampires to increase and multiply but according to an ascertained and ghostly law. Assume at starting a territory perfectly free from that pest. How does it begin and how does it multiply itself? I will tell you. A person, more or less wicked, puts an end to himself. A suicide, under certain circumstances, becomes a vampire. That spectre visits living people in their slumbers. They die and almost invariably in the grave develop into vampires. This happened in the case of the beautiful Mikala, was haunted by one of those demons. My ancestor Fordenberg, whose title I still bear, soon discovered this, and in the course of the studies to which he devoted himself, learned a good deal more. Among other things, he concluded, that suspicion of vampirism would probably fall, sooner or later, upon the dead countess, who in life had been his idol. He conceived a horror, be what she might, of her remains being profaned by the outrage of a posthumous execution. He has left a curious paper to prove that the vampire, on its expulsion from its amphibious existence, is projected into a far more horrible life, and he resolved to save his once beloved Mekala from this. He adopted the stratagem of a journey here, a pretended removal of her remains, and a real obliteration of her monument. When age had stolen upon him and from the veil of years he looked back on the scenes he was leaving, he considered in a different spirit what he had done, and a horror took possession of him. He made the tracings and notes which have guided me to the very spot and drew up a confession of the deception that he had practised. If he had intended any further action in this matter, death prevented him. And the hand of a remote descendant has, too late for many, directed the pursuit to the lair of the beast. We talked a little more, and among other things he said was this. One sign of the vampire is the power of the hand. The slender hand of Mikala closed like a vice of steel on the general's wrist when he raised the hatchet to strike, but its power is not confined to its grasp, it leaves a numbness in the limit ceases, which is slowly, if ever, recovered from. The following spring my father took me a tour through Italy. We remained away for more than a year. It was long before the terror of recent events subsided, and at this hour— the image of Carmilla returns to memory with ambiguous alternations, sometimes the playful, languid, beautiful girl, sometimes the writhing fiend I saw in the ruined church, and often from a reverie I have started, fancying I heard the light step of Carmilla at the drawing-room door. I um, have decided to do my notes from notes rather than just making it up in the vain hope that I won't ramble as much and go off into ums and ahs. So I've actually written these notes first, but I'll probably dip- depart from them due to my ADHD. So anyway, um, this is that was Camilla Part 3, the third and final part of our retelling of the story as you know, it was by Joseph Thomas Sheridan Lafarne, who was born in Ireland in 1814, who was regarded in his time and afterwards as a master of the ghost story genre. And a lot of people who were experts in the field, such as M.R. James, thought he was wonderful. Um, He wrote a lot of stories, probably do some of the other ones later on, but Carmilla is one of his most famous. Um, And it's a vampire story rather than a ghost story. Uh, I think it's Interesting that Joseph's father was a very strict Protestant churchman. Uh, Lots of ghost story writers' dads were um, Christian priests, so I wonder what that says. That is not too much of a stretch, I suppose. It's all about ghosts, isn't it? So um, I wonder if uh, John Sheridan or JT, as I'm calling, ever read out his stories to his dad. He was a master of the Gothic, of Gothic description. And we've seen, Carmilla, some of his most fantastically conjured place, place scenes. I mean, I particularly love the first part, the description of the schloss in the moonlight, this, the forest. We've got to remember that when they were writing, such as Bram Stoker, they picked these very obscure parts of Europe that their readers in Britain and America wouldn't have ever been to. So we have Transylvania which is a fantastically, wonderfully beautiful place. Uh, If you ever get the chance to visit, you should do it. It's not scary. The food's nice. It's beautiful. It's actually quite sunny a lot of the time. Um, And uh, then Styria in the the very southern bit of Austria, very obscure part, full of werewolves and vampires. Anyway, um, good, good descriptions. Also the Castle Karnstein cemetery at the end with its gloomy monuments, very gothic. And does the, the mask ball with the fireworks. And that actually scene was borrowed in Van Helsing, the movie Van Helsing with Kate Beckinsale, who looks ravishing indeed. Um, all the, I think it was interesting because, of course, this sold very well, this story, from the get-go, I think. And not least because of the kind of, may I say, erotic frisson between the two beautiful young women. Um, I will not comment any further on that, or the popularity of such things among gentlemen who frequent the internet these days. It's just the same old thing. It's got a nice structure. The very beginning, we are disappointed that the general and his young lady friend, his young charge isn't coming. And Laura, the protagonist, is very upset. So that sets up what's going to happen later on. We kind of, I don't know if you suspected it the first time you heard it, but that's what was coming, and we know that as we get on. And then he he squares that circle, or he completes the circle at the end when the general comes and it's revealed what we had suspected. So there's a really nice structure there. The only thing I would say is I thought this could have been a novel rather than a novella. It's relatively short. Carmilla disappears if I would written it. I wouldn't have sold as many as Lafana, there you go. But no, so he knows what he's talking about. (laughs) Probably we could have had Camilla revisiting and a bit of that and a search. If you think of Dracula, whereby they're searching for Dracula desperately, he could have done a bit of that, and I think he could have extended it, but maybe he had bills to pay, maybe he needed to cut it short. Anyway, it's a good story, I really enjoyed reading it. I say next, we're going to have a bit of a change, I think I'm going to go back to a ghost story. Now, there's a writer I want to do because I, I like doing my American accent, as you know, and there's a guy called Russell Kirk, and I've just got his book from the States, which is quite rare. He wrote a lot of his stories set in England and Scotland because he, he actually studied in Scotland, although his family was an old American family, uh, a wasp family, I believe you say. Um, there's lots to say about Russell Kirk, but I will do that later on. So I'm probably going to do that. That's it. In terms of my usual stuff, oh, yeah, we had a lovely review from Gabby on Apple iTunes. Five-star, beautiful review. I loved it. It made me fill up with tears. I was really pleased because all I want to do is make people happy and entertain them. So if you like it, you know, do share the podcast. Do, Do rate it. That really helps. But sharing's good. Rate it and comment. Get in touch. And I've put on the show notes, we've got a Twitter handle, we've got an Instagram account. Get in touch and let me know what you'd like me to read out. I'm very happy to read anything in the genre. Probably wouldn't do any superheroes or action movie adventure stories, you know. But uh, anything in the genre, I'm very happy to read out. In fact, I'd be pleased if you were suggesting it. So that's about it. Yeah, of course, the plea, please, please, please. No, um, you know, we've got a Patreon account. That would be really cool if you could, if you could support the podcast that way as well. But it's just great to have you along. say I've let you off the hook there. Damn, you can tell why I'm not a marketeer. Um, no, it's it is. It's great to have you along. Love to hear from you. I love to read for you. And we're getting Christmas coming up soon, so I've got some ideas. I'm going to do. I'm probably going to do some classics. But why not, hey, I can do what I want. Alright, next time.